that rabbit hole So reality is questionable Try but you just can't let it go These two right here put on the show It's paranormal overload with southern hospitality Haunted murder mayhem tip while discussing immortality Locations with a dark past History that comes to life Hillbillies with a knack for Everything that goes bump at night Overthinking if you by yourself These two will have you turning on the lights Mixing in a little comedy to make sure it all fits in just right Hey, Welcome to Hillbilly Horror Story Now here's your hosts Jerry and Tracy Hawk Heather Dog Ninja Warning, you will be offended, podcast. Hey guys, my name's Jerry. And I'm Amanda. And we are the host of Warning You Will Be Offended podcast, where we pretty much say whatever the hell we want. We don't care who gets offended, including yourself. Yeah, so if you're someone that needs to edit themselves around family, friends, co-workers, we're that podcast you can listen to and laugh out loud with us. And we like to discuss uh, a little bit of everything, a lot of fun stories that are going on in the news, a lot of stupid criminal stuff, and we do the fun fact of the week. Amanda, do you have a fun fact that you can share with us right now? Approximately half of Australia's koala population has a strand of chlamydia. While different to the strand that affects humans, if a koala urinates on a person, there's a chance you can get an infection. So that is absolutely Absolutely incredible, and that's what you get if you listen to our podcast every week. So don't be afraid, don't be politically correct. Come listen to our podcast and have a few hours every month to where you actually feel like you can be yourself. So come on in and enjoy us. Hey guys, welcome to episode 288 of Hillbilly Horror Stories. I'll be honest, this is not what we had intended. Uh, Tracy is under the weather, she has zero voice. Uh, it's not COVID. She's taking a test for that, but she is definitely not feeling up to recording and her voice couldn't do it even if she wanted to. So even though I have a fantastic story worked up, I also didn't want to do it by myself because that's not typically how we do things. So I decided to put that off until next week. So next week we'll be covering uh, Fort Laramie. And then uh, the following week, we're going to cover another Western story. We're going to cover the uh, battlefield of Little Bighorn. So back-to-back Wild West stories. So looking forward to that next week. For this week, uh, I do have a story. We went back to our Patreon from July of 2019. And it's some haunted Iowa stuff, including the Van Meter monster. So that's one I think a lot of people are interested in. And I think you guys will actually like this episode. So as usual, if uh, you're not a Patreon supporter, these are the kind of episodes that we put out every single month on Patreon that's not typically part of the regular feed. Now also, we had a, an awesome interview that had kind of a surprise in it. Laura Brand and James Anito are starting a podcast called True Evil. Laura is a criminologist, and she is working on a big documentary that involves serial killers. And she is the toolbox killers expert. She's been on a couple of television shows where that's literally what they call her, where she talks to one of the toolbox killers. That's a very famous case that most true crime fans are probably aware of. But as we're on the phone with her doing this interview, she actually gets a call that she puts on speaker from San Quentin prison from a serial killer. So we don't get to really hear a whole bunch, but that's pretty cool to just have randomly happen. Uh, and James, Anito, you've probably seen him or heard him on a bunch of other television shows or 
podcast. He is a uh, world-renowned demonologist that actually trained under Bishop James Long. So this is a very fun interview. You get to learn a little bit about some of these cases, including the Toolbox Killers case and uh, some possession cases. You guys are going to like this interview. Obviously, we want to thank all of our military and civil servants all over the world, no matter which country you represent. Thanks to all of you for everything you do. We appreciate it. Also, we want to make sure that we know that if you're struggling and you would like to reach out to somebody uh, to get a little bit of uh, some help on your mental illness, you just need somebody to talk to, please reach out to friends or family members. You can always reach out to Tracy or myself. And uh, the group is always available to you. And for some reason, if you would just rather talk to somebody more anonymous, the hotline, the suicide hotline is 1-800-273-8255. And if you're more of a texter, 741-741. Okay, guys, let's go ahead and jump into this episode. Hey, guys, and welcome to the July 2019 bonus episode. Welcome, (laughs) y'all. Hmm. So we got two stories tonight that are vastly different. The first one is going to be more of a cryptid story, but it's a pretty cool story. Mm-hmm. And the second one is going to, we're going to tell you about Iowa State University's haunted campus. Oh. That is actually on one of the, uh, listed as one of the most haunted campuses in the United States. No kidding. You know what other campus is listed at number 50 of the top 50? No. Transylvania right here. Well, it should be haunted with that name. <laughs> you would think. And that where Count Dracula went? I don't think so. I think you think in Count Dracula. Oh, Count Dracula. <laughs> that was a Count Dracula, right? Yeah, that was Transylvania. Oh, very cool. But that wasn't this Transylvania. That was in Romania. Romania, yeah. That'd be cool. So, are you ready to get your cryptid on? I'm ready. Let's get it on. Right, so, most of you have heard of Mothman and the Jersey Devil. Mm-hmm. Those kind of go without saying. They're pretty famous... Flying cryptids, and uh, I guess you could call it a cryptid. I, don't, I get confused sometimes on what an actual cryptid is, because like some people would call that like a humanoid and not call it a cryptid. Mm-hmm. But either way, so that's what these two things had in common. And there's another creature that had a really similar description. This was in Van Meter, Iowa in 1903. Now, this creature was said to be half human and half animal with horns. And did I mention that it shoots a beam of light from its head? No way. Yes, it does. Oh, how cool. And it comes into play in a lot of different ways. But anyway, it was a big winged creature with glowing eyes, according to all accounts. Now, some people think that it might just have been a throwback from the dinosaur age. Uh, Some think just by the description alone that it kind of fits the description of a pterodactyl. Mm Mm-hmm. Minus the light glowing out of its head. Mm -hmm. But there are people who think that maybe as years have went on, that's like the telephone game to where the light kind of got added afterwards. And maybe that wasn't what people really saw. But At at first, yeah. So it's possible that it could be a Thunderbird. You hear about those a lot Mm -hmm. of times from Native American culture. They're often described as huge and leathery. So that would kind of maybe fit the description a little bit. But enough of the description. Let's get to this story because it's pretty cool. October 5th, 1903. U.S. Griffith, that was his name. He was inside, you know, in town and it was nighttime. He sees what he thought was an electric searchlight. Keep in mind, this is 1903, so there's not a whole lot of electric searchlight would have been a, a big deal back then. Yeah. But he sees this light 
And it's kind of like coasting from storefront to storefront. Uh, And he sees it actually jump from building to building and then just disappear behind another one. So, like I said, this thing was hopping from rooftop to rooftop. And he noticed a distinct stench in the air that he had never smelled before. Like he was farting as he was jumping? It's possible. So, Mr. Griffith fired off a couple of, of shots from his gun. But he said it didn't seem to affect the monster at all, even though he knows for a fact he struck it several times. Mm-hmm. So the next day, U.S. Griffith was telling everybody his story. And as you can imagine, he was the butt of most jokes. Yeah, you know, nobody was believing was, that stuff. Maybe he was drunk. Maybe he was just trying to pull a hoax, whatever the deal was. But that night, there was another sighting by another credible witness, the town doctor. Oh, he saw the same thing he, that guy did? Yeah. So Dr. Alcott said he was sleeping in his office when he was woke up by a huge flash of light. He grabbed his shotgun, ran outside, and he says there was this thing like slamming itself into the ground over and over again. So it was just making a thud. Like, stop hitting yourself. Stop hitting yourself. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> so we talked about the Jersey Devil earlier, and it said... Uh, that the Jersey Devil used to kind of move around like it like it was a kangaroo. Mm-hmm. And that's what the doctor said this thing moved around a lot like. So he said it had a, a, a kangaroo movement about like the way it would jump. Now, most of this is the same thing that the gentleman the night before had said. Mm-hmm. So now he's not looking so stupid. But the doctor said this thing would leap in the air using its giant featherless wings to just kind of help it. Now, Dr. Alcott, he was going to do the same thing, so he steadies his shotgun, and he fires. He said he took several shots. The doctor said that it looked half human, and he wasn't sure what the other half was. Mm -hmm. He said it had enormous bat-like wings and a horn protruding from the front of its monstrously beaked face that emitted... A dazzling bright light that blinded him. Oh, wow. So maybe it's not like a telephone game because now you got two different people to both yeah. talk about the bright light. How cool would it be able to just hop like that? Like, going, <laughs> going, <laughs> wouldn't that be fun? It might be. So as he's shooting his gun, this awakens Sidney Gregg, who was a teacher in town. Now you got another credible mm-hmm. witness. He gets up, he says, he looks out just in time to see this creature leap from the ground and just jump straight to the sky and start flying. Wow. So Greg and Dr. Alcott both noticed the foul smell in the air. Mm-hmm. Now you got three people who've seen this creature. All of them are actually credible people. They all have the same exact description. But wait, there's more. Later that night, another doctor... Dr. White, he saw the same thing. He said it was climbing a telephone pole, and he said it looked the same as like a parrot climbing a pole in its cage. You know how the, mm, oh, yeah. the beak, I mm-hmm. mean, the beak can hold on. Yeah. And, so that's what he said it looked like. Now, he also shot the monster, but he shot it through his window. Well, duh. Which was not open. Well, duh. <laughs> so it broke the window. And he says he may have hit the creature. He wasn't 100% sure, but the creature flew off regardless. Now he's got to replace his window. (laughs) Yes. Now, this thing might have flown away, but it was going to be back. So J.L. Platt, he was the foreman of the town's brick company. 
And he starts getting these phone calls that there was some peculiar noises coming from the nearby abandoned coal mine. He gets a group of guys together and they go out to the mine. They got to look around. This was, keep in mind, the early hours of the morning. We're probably looking at about 1, 2 o'clock in the morning. They were heavily armed. Everybody had their guns. They got close to this to, to uh, the cave, or the uh, uh, mine shaft, I should say, and this creature bust out of the mine right past them. <laughs> that would have scared the crap out of you. Well, it probably would, but not as much as the second thing, because Uh-oh, that wasn't the surprising following? part. It was followed by a second creature. Oh, twins. <laughs> so they both, everybody there fired a bunch of shots at this thing. And the things were just too quick for them, though. They got past them. So the story makes its way into town. Now everybody kind of knows what's going on. Several other people decide they're going to come out to the mine shaft and stand guard for the entire night. Just that everybody's beginning to think nothing's going to happen. These creatures return, they swoop back into the mind. Mind, not mind. So the creatures, they look just alike, though, yes. right? Yes. Okay. They go into the mind, but nobody follows them. <laughs> I wouldn't either. I probably wouldn't either. Several days pass, but the creatures were never seen in Van Meter again. Like ever? Ever. Ever, ever. Ever. Oh, my gosh. I wonder then if, well, I guess nobody still would be brave enough to go in there and see why. I don't know, but... Maybe they were having babies. It's possible. So, what was this thing? All records, beyond eyewitness testimony, seems to have been lost over the years. Supposedly, there was a plaster cast that was taken to the three-toed tracks, but somehow that's disappeared as well, so nobody's got that. We do know that most of the people who saw the creature were prominent townspeople, doctors, shopkeepers, mm-hmm. uh, and, the, teachers. and the teachers. So, mm-hmm. other than that... Who knows? I don't know about that story. <laughs> How's everything just b- get lost? Well, it is the 1900s, 1903. Hmm. It was, you know. Man, that would be scary. But if that thing came out and you saw something like that hopping around. I mean, I find it hard to believe that something didn't happen. No, I, I, I agree with you there. And you got to realize, too, that you, Van Meter, back in 1903, this little town was like, you picture the little ghost town that the Brady Bunch got locked into. Mm-hmm. Remember that? Mm-hmm. Yes. This is what this town looked like. Oh. So it's not like a big metropolitan city. This was yeah. out in the middle of nowhere. Hmm. That's interesting. So, anyways. They just wanted to come out to play for a while, and then they were over it. I guess so. And then they went back into hibernation. So, but do you think it could have been a dinosaur? Like a, an actual pterodactyl? Why not? Or, you know, and I'm not saying it's exactly the same thing, but have you seen that bat that goes around that's got that big horse head thing? Mm. I, I can't remember what it's called. But I know some people said they think that might be the Jersey Devil. I mean, it's it's big. It's okay. not that big. I, I mean, but uh-uh. it's like three feet tall, but it's got this giant horse head on it. Wow, I've not seen that. Yeah. And it's a real bat. Oh, my so. gosh. that's That's pretty cool. So anyways, that's the story of the Van Meter. And we're going to stick in Iowa for the rest of our stories. Okay. You know, it's funny because until I started kind of looking at this, you don't realize how many pretty prominent haunted places Iowa has. But you do have the Velasco Axe Murder House. And you do have 
this university that's in the top. And then you did have the van meter thing. And there's several others, you know, as you've seen when you read the, the list the other day on the, mm-hmm. uh, the shorts. But I guess it just makes you realize that, you know, haunted places and stuff, they're, they're not reserved for, like, Romania and stuff yeah. like that. I mean, they can very well just be in, you know, small town mm-hmm. Iowa or yeah. whatever. You just never know. So we're going to talk a little bit about Iowa State University. And these are some otherworldly experiences that have been passed down by word of mouth from like student to student. Uh, although finding the original, I guess, uh, origin of some of these stories are kind of impossible. But here are some that, that uh, I picked out for you that I thought was pretty cool. And like I said, we, you know, it's kind of like the game of telephone. Who knows how much of this has changed over the years. But the first one we're going to talk about is room 101. Now, room 101 is inside of Friley Hall. And they say that that room is always going to be sealed. So nobody can use that room. Now, Friley Hall was built in 1927. And for anybody who's ever lived there or even wandered there one night, we can kind of all agree that it's a creepy looking place. If you see the pictures, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Now, according to the article I read, there was a former student that committed suicide in the room there in Friley, leading to many haunting legends, which caused the room to be closed permanently. However, the official university reason for the room closure is that no access to a fire escape. So that's why they say the room was closed off. But many students still refer to this room as Satan's Legion. Mm. So here's kind of the story. So just like uh, Room 101, just like um, the movie The Grudge. You've seen The Grudge, Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. When somebody kills himself in a fit of anger his rage supposedly will remain present like long after the body's in the ground. And the situation fits here with the story of, of this student. He said he hung himself in his dorm room only to be found by a resident assistant about a week later. No one learned why he did it. There was no note or no explanation ever discussed. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously that's not going to be the end of our story because we haven't talked about any hauntings when it comes to that room. So students from the, that time on after the uh, the gentleman committed suicide, whoever occupied that room would find unsettling things happen to them, such as items that would move around, wrestling heard from behind the door. And some people even woke up with cuts on their shoulders. Every person who entered that room always had the feeling that someone was in there with them. Eventually, students started to refuse to live in the room. So to disprove this rumor once and for all, and to get occupants back in the room, the hall director decided to spend the night one night. Halfway through that night, the hall director exited the same room, saying that it will forever be unoccupied by residents after that. Did so, he not believe the people, or he just wanted no, to see for himself? He didn't believe them. He just wanted to prove that they were just full of crap. Oh. Old wives' tales or yeah. urban legends or mm-hmm. whatever. So again, no explanation was given. The next day, it was sealed shut, and no one has gone in it since. Wow. Now, there's a cemetery on campus, too. Did you know that? No. So every, everybody... That's bizarre. Yeah, everybody in the area knows about the cemetery, and it's where all the famous alumni are buried, including uh, Frederica Chatuck. and I have no clue who that is, but apparently mm-hmm. she's famous. When the cemetery was built in 1876, the body of a dead baby was found frozen to death on top of one of the graves. Oh, my goodness. 
Several days before the discovery, a mother in the area had reported the disappearance of her infant son from his crib. She subsequently hung herself in despair. The morning after her death was when the baby was found. Go to the far north corner of the cemetery and light a candle on the last grave you come across. If, while you do this, you shed genuine tears, supposedly the spirit of the mother will come to you through the forest next to the cemetery, believing that your cries are the ones of her fallen son. Oh, that's so sad. That, that really does make me want to cry. <laughs> Genuine tears. No kidding. Poor baby. Now you got Linden Hall. Most people are curious why the second floor of Linden Hall has no mirrors in its hallways. And it's because they were all taken down. Every last one of them. People kept reporting and seeing a glimpse of someone in, in those mirrors only to turn around and find themselves alone. So one person said that it was a tall male. Others said that he had black hair. Some people said he had brown hair. Only one similarity was the same in every story. He wore a football uniform. Oh, wow. So upon some further research, residents discovered that many years ago, an um, Iowa State University football player who lived on that floor was horrifically killed in a car accident on his way back to campus. The same weekend, his roommate, another football player, was hit by a car and killed. That's crazy. The reports continued to students who got spooked, so all the mirrors were removed. The apparitions, however, were still walking around the halls. Unfortunate students who have walked down the hall with a mirror in their hands have sworn this very fact. It's like a photobomber in the mirror. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, uh, um, I think the... Rule of thumb would be to never carry a mirror down that hallway. Ever. Ever, ever, ever. Why would you? Yeah, I wouldn't. There's a place there called the Footfalls. And this is between Fisher Theater. And we're going to talk about Fisher Theater in a little bit. But it's between Fisher Theater and Stevens Auditorium. It's a set of underground tunnels that kind of link the two buildings together. And in these tunnels, late at night, if you've got the you know misfortune, I guess, of being there, you'll hear the soft treading of footsteps. They belong to Clifford Stevens, who donated a million dollars to its construction after whom Stevens Auditorium was named. Unlike so many tales, he is actually a friendly ghost. He's often seen sitting on one of the top uh, floor balconies during plays, which apparently is a sign of good luck. He's especially fond of the performances of the Nutcracker. He's got after your spirit. He's uh mm-hmm. loves the Christmas time. Oh yeah. But you're not really supposed to, you know, join ghosts up in a balcony, so I probably wouldn't do that. You're not? No. Why? Because you shouldn't you shouldn't um join ghosts anywhere as far as like watching a play or something. Well, what if they invite you? I don't it, I don't think that's gonna happen. Why would they invite you? I don't know. They if there's lots be, of room up there, why can't I? They probably want to be left alone. Uh then we've got, we talked about Frederica Chatuck, and I said, mm-hmm. I don't really know who she is, but I was lying. Oh, <laughs> look at you. I just knew we were going to be getting to her. <laughs> so after she died, and, and by the way, she was the former head of the Department of Public Speaking. So she left a lot of money, her entire wealth, to um, Iowa State University Theater. How nice. Yeah. 
she was like so much in theater because she produced plays for Iowa State for more than 20 years. So she was she was her definitely her love. Her other parting gift was a wheelchair, which now resides in the ISU props barn to be used when the need arises. Well, I'll be dang. And just for the record, that's not the last time Frederica was seen when she gave the, mm-hmm. the stuff to him. Because from the stage of the Fisher Theater, many a thespian has reported seeing her image reflected in the light booth. And there's also numerous reports of her presence in the theater from glances out of the eyes at night to the uh, backstage area. Well, how nice is that, that she can still hang there after her death? Something that she truly loves. Mm-hmm. That's, that's not her that's only that's trick, a, though. Y- huh? That's not her only trick. Oh. In a recent production of The Secret Garden, cast members used Frederica's wheelchair as a prop. During rehearsal, for no reason, the wheelchair began rolling across the stage. Much to the horror of the actors that were involved, I'm sure. Then it stopped again on its own, right in the middle of the stage. How cool is that? That's really cool. It would have really would have been cool if it did it while they were actually putting on the play. Right. And I told you we were going to talk a little more about Fisher Theater. Now, here's the deal. So, she haunts the ghost of Fisher Theater. Now, the theater originally was named after Chateau because mm-hmm. she donated all this money back in 1960. But it was torn down in 1979 after Iowa State kind of started using the new Fisher Theater in 1973. Oh, So darn. I guess she just kind of moved on older. But many of the students and theater workers have reported hearing voices uh, throughout the years. And according to uh, a website called Mysterious Heartland, you know, the wheelchair incidents and all that started happening after that. But originally it was in a different theater. That was named after her, and then they moved over to Fisher Theater. Oh, so wait. All that stuff happened after they moved to a different theater, too? Yes. Good for her. You've also got a place on the uh, campus called the Farmhouse Museum. Now, the museum is reportedly haunted by two sisters who used to live in that house. An Iowa State timeline of the farmhouse also says that Esther Wilson unexpectedly died while she was living in the house. She was the wife of politician James Wilson. An article from the Ames Tribute in 2014 states that Wilson may also be one of the ghosts haunting the house. However, being the oldest uh, building on the campus being opened in 1860, it's very possible that many former residents kind of haunt this old farmhouse. So some of the incidents reported in the house involve artifacts being moved, curtains opening by themselves, and shadows of people who are not there. Friendly ghosts roam the halls also of Barton and Freeman Halls. Freeman Hall is named after Alice Freeman Palmer. She's a former educator there. And Barton Hall is named after Clara Barton, one of the founders of the American Red Cross. That's really nice. Both of these ghosts are said to be friendly and they help students whenever they're needed. However, the second floor of Lennon Hall is supposedly home to all those ghosts with the mirrors mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. they can take care of the first and and the, the ghosts of the football players, I guess, take care of the, the mirror ones up front. That is awesome. And I saved the best for last. Okay. At least to me. It's the most mysterious anyway. So I'm not going to give you any like directions to this house. You'll have to find it for yourself. Needless to say, the, the house is off campus a little bit. But years ago, during the time of uh, V-Show, which is like a, a celebration, a week-long celebration that they do on Iowa State campus every mm-hmm. year. So... 
think of like a giant pep rally type thing. Yeah. It lasts a whole week. So they're doing, it's during this time, uh, these two beautiful twin sisters were walking back from school. It was dark out. Uh, the campus had people partying everywhere, as you could imagine. They reach a stop sign just before the gravel road that led to their father's house. They were crossing when they were obliterated by a speeding red car, killing them instantly. Oh, my gosh. Oh. Their father found the remains, and to appease his rage and honor his daughters, across the road from their house, he built the world's most horrific dollhouse, constructed out of wood and shaped like Bruce's heart, which is like a little Greek uh, mythological creature. Mm -hmm. It's like a two-headed dog type thing. Oh. If I remember correctly. That's what he built it to look like? Yep. It's heart. So leading up to it, every year, he adds yet another sign, covered in hate. Last year's was flowers, but it was spelled capital F, L-O, capital W, E-R, capital Z. So night after night, he sets out in his white van under the single street lamp, holding a shotgun, and he just sits there and just waits. He waits patiently for the red car to return so he can avenge his children. I hate to tell him it's probably not coming back, though. Oh, so they never caught him? Who did that? Mm -hmm. Tradition dictates that when you find this house, you must speed through the stop sign, and on rare occasions, the images of the twin sisters will appear in your windshield. Hmm. Then you go visit the house further down the gravel road. Just watch out for the white van if the headlights are on. And please, when you do this, don't, don't drive a red car. Oh, my God. Probably not a good idea. No. Gosh, that had to be such a, you know, horrible thing for their dad to see. I can't even imagine that. And I don't know what year that was supposed to have been. I mean, I don't know if that was like 50 years ago when he was trying that or if this was 10 years ago. Mm. That's really not good. I mean, I wonder, I I guess those guys are probably drunk, whoever it was. May not even known they did it. For all you know. No, but they went, but they ran the stop sign. So they ran the stop sign. Yeah, they ran the stop sign and was speeding. And so. What a shame. I figured maybe we could end tonight's show with a listener story or two. What do you think? Yeah, that sounds great. So before we get into the listener episode, I know everybody is sick of these uh, Area 51 memes. Have you seen that some of the groups now are putting like, just post them under this thread where they're, they're no. just. Yeah. So there's, I've seen at least two of them do that where they're like, hey, if you're going to post memes about area 51 in here just put it all put them all under this thread because otherwise they're going to get deleted oh i never i never seen such outrage on facebook as what there is <laughs> on these on these area 51 <laughs> and can we can we all agree that this is just stupid as hell sure. it's a military base if yeah. you try to storm the military base you will get shot and killed yep and you know what they might not be able to get all of us but they might be able to get me and that's enough to keep me out of it there you go well, so, I don't know why you chance it. No, and it, most of the shit's probably not there anyway. They probably moved that stuff years ago. Well, I'm sure they did. I mean, they, they would have to know people would be trying to get in there. And, and you know, I saw somebody post the other day that is 100% accurate. Wright-Patterson Air Force bases where supposedly all of the um, aliens and the craft and everything was taken to afterwards. So I would think that that would probably be the, you know, and they're supposed to have a, a giant underground bunker and everything. Mm-hmm. I know Nick uh, has got some cool stories from Ohio about when he worked out there as a security guard. Oh, I didn't know he did that. Oh, yeah. Wow. And, and, you know, he's he's got some 
Uh, I don't know if he worked at the right Patterson. I think he worked at the prison um, out there. But when he would go to like Waffle House or something, there would be a lot of the people who were at uh, out there that would come in and talk about stuff that they saw. Mm, and so, how interesting. So, anyways, so let's get into this uh, a little bit of story here. Uh, this one's going to come from Becky. I'm not going to give any more information on her. She said, "I've really been enjoying your podcast. I've been listening for the last few weeks." I was really interested in the Ouija board. When I was a kid, my mom and her friends loved to play with it. But me, it just always made me nervous. So my grandmother was very religious, and she always took us to church. Grandma hated that thing and would say how evil the Ouija board was. When my mom and her friends would play, all the kids would get to ask questions. But when it was my turn, I would never answer anything. So one day... I was home by myself. I found the board and I started asking it questions. It didn't seem to do anything, so I left it and walked away. Then about 10 minutes later, I kept hearing noises in the room where the Ouija board was. And I went in there and looked and the planchette had been moving. After that, I would never mess with that thing again. My grandmother was right. It's true evil. Keep up the great stories. Woo-wee. So what do you think? I think they should have just you played with the eight ball. <laughs> Shake it up and see what the answer is. I think you'd be much safer that way. It's very possible. Very possible. So what are your thoughts again on a Ouija board? Do you have you have you had any experiences or have you just become scared of them over the years from like listening to these stories? Yes. I have not touched one. Ever? No. Not ever. Ever been in the same room where somebody was using one? No. Have you ever seen one out of the box? Yes, I have. I don't know. It's just, I always felt eerie about that thing. I think even before I knew what it really was, just something was always just said, just don't go near it. I don't know why, but I just never have. That's why I've never touched one. I was real close to almost telling my story. Oh, my gosh. Will you please tell your story forever? <laughs> oh, please. No. But I will tell you, oh, I will you. tell you, it's it's in similar lines to her story. It is? Yeah. But mine was scarier. Not that hers wasn't scary, but mine was way scarier. Are you ever going to tell that story? Probably not. Because you're afraid something will happen? I don't know. Is that why know. you don't want to tell? It's just... Um, Probably the scariest experience of my life, and it's just something I'd rather not relive. Mm-hmm. It's not like thinking about it doesn't relive it, but <laughs> something right. about I guess this, if you say it out I loud. I guess just saying it out loud just makes it seem, I don't know, more real or something. Yeah. I mean, I get it. And it's, and I told you, the, the real reason isn't because of that. The real reason is it sounds so crazy that majority of people will say that's bs that didn't happen mm -hmm. and i just assume look i know what happened so i'll just keep it to myself and i have to hear anybody's story about it mm -hmm. yeah so that's the reality of it that's your privilege that's right i'm bobby brown it's my prerogative mm -hmm. all right let's end on this one this one's kind of a unique and, and it's a fairly new story as far as i know i mean it, it happened a long time ago so it's not that new but you know what i mean it's mm -hmm. for, as far as like the word out so did you know that in 1911, wolves actually killed a wedding party of 118 people in Russia? Stop. The New York Times described survivors seeing a black cloud moving rapidly toward them across the snowfield. 
There was a pack of hundreds of starving wolves that slaughtered them while they traveled uh, to what they supposed was going to be a, uh, you know, like a happy occasion. wedding, I guess. Well, it was a wedding. I don't know how to get Can you imagine? What the <laughs> hell? Now, supposedly, this is the story, but I'm not completely sure, so I'm just going to lead with that. Okay. So it said that the animals had been acting strangely for a while. They were kind of skittish, like something had spooked them. And the neighbors in this little rural village had complained about some strange lights and uh, during the nighttime. So they all had a bunch of ideas on what it could be, what kind of, you know, just idle chit-chat sitting around, just guessing, you know, what could possibly be happening with these things. The winter had been way too warm. And maybe there were crews looking to build that factory down to the next town, whatever. But probably it was just teenagers with fireworks or drinking or being stupid or whatever. It was probably all it was, what they thought anyway. So the night that it happened, it was a full moon. And uh, this one guy said he remembers walking home from visiting a friend earlier in the evening. And he was amazed at how well lit everything was from the moonlight. Uh-huh. He said he wasn't too far from the attack. or He was... He was too far from the attack, from the first attack to hear the screams, but the news the next day kind of shocked him. Said wolves had attacked a campsite nearby. Fifteen people had been killed and another eight injured. While this wasn't unheard of, the loss of life was extreme, and we they were all shocked in the town at that time. However, there weren't more attacks. People healed and, and they moved on. The second month was way worse. So this guy's neighbor's cousin had moved in after. Uh, the attack so he could kind of recuperate and the neighbor had complained to no end about the inconvenience, which is, you know, that's what you do. You invite somebody to move in with you and then complain about what an inconvenience yeah, that's is. That's rude. By which he meant he couldn't hit his wife <laughs> when the relative was staying at the house. That's what the <laughs> what he says. What a guys. jerk. <laughs> so this guy said he could hear the screams when it started and he remembered looking at the window and seeing a giant wolf chasing him out of his house and being frozen by the sight. He said it was too large, unnatural, deadly, so he locked himself in the basement for the night and prayed for the morning. So sunrise brought uh, awful news and heartbreak. The village was not very large, and the 55 deaths shook it all. Another 37 people were injured, and no one could explain how a pack of large wolves had descended across such a distance without being noticed, or how so many of them had gotten into the people's houses. This guy said he began to hear whispers and rumors and from the survivors that had been touched with some dark curse that they were the blame for this. So for the next month, it seemed like they had set on a powder keg. The whole community counted down the days until the next full moon. So he said he's not sure how many people were killed that night. But he knows that the soldiers arrived the next morning and they were told that they were being relocated to a small city that was close to where... Um, this area, but they could still be protected. So it was just temporarily, but it was a safety measure, and the government had killed violent pack of wolves in the area. After arriving in, in this little city and being inspected for wounds by the army medic, he said that they were kind of put in makeshift shelters, and uh, the villages throughout the sur- surrounding area had been emptied into the city, and anybody who had been bitten by a wolf was moved to a special quarantine and the same camp outside the city. He said he never saw any of those people again, but he assumed that they're probably now dead. Oh. Ugh. So how about that? 
That's a horrible story. <laughs> That's just horrible. It is horrible. And how are they just going to come in your house and eat you? Well, maybe it was uh, like they thought it was like Little Red Riding Hood. That ain't how it works. The real Red Riding Hood it was. The really the, the very first Red Riding Hood, it was very gross. The wolf was feeding the uh, Little Red Riding Hood pieces of her grandma. Like <gasps> she, she ate her grandma's teeth. and. Ew. Yeah, it what was very gross. What do you mean? I guess I must have missed that. Yeah. How was she eating her teeth? Like was it in a baked good or something? No, it was in a uh, like a jar. Like, and he told her it was rice. I think it was because she was hungry. She had went out. She was she was out in the fields. Her and her grandma, and they were. She stopped to get some soup. I don't know where she was getting soup at. She stopped to get like a, a container of soup somehow. And then when she got home, the wolf had followed her. So the wolf had had met up with her and then left and went through the briars and got to grandma's house and ate grandma. And was in the bed. So when she came in, she was like, well, you look a little different. And, you know, you know how that goes from there. Mm -hmm. But then he had her. She said she was hungry. I guess she forgot about the damn soup uh, that she had. (laughs) And she went in to to fix something. And he said there was some kind of uh, rice or something up there in a container. And it was grandma's teeth. And she was eating That is disgusting. And I'm going to barf. And then he killed her. He killed Red Riding Hood? he killed her and ate her. Why did I not know this story? Well, because that's the original story. It's not the story that everybody here knows. Look that's it up, though. It's really not good. It's very disgusting. It is disgusting. These damn all of these children's old, stories, like Rockabye Baby. When yeah. after, you know what I'm saying? All I mean, of these old fairy tales were very harsh, and they were meant... I mean, keep in mind, the whole point of these fairy tales was to teach a kid, don't go walk around in the woods by yourself. Mm-hmm. Well, you get grandma ate by a wolf, and then you get ate by a wolf. And that's probably a better story to tell kids if you want to scare them. Uh-huh. So that's what it was about that back then. And most of these were German. So Man, that's rough. So anyways, that's the ending for your... <laughs> I wasn't expecting that one. A few little twists and turns in this bonus episode. No, now go eat your dinner. <laughs> yeah, go eat some teeth. <laughs> grandma's teeth. <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you so much for everything you do. We appreciate you. Love you guys. All right, now let's hear from James and Laura from True Evil right after this quick sponsor break. Hey guys, if you're like me, you never get tired of a good whodunit. If that's you, then you're going to love June's journey. You get to play as June Parker. She's an amateur detective investigating a series of mysteries, and it's full of twists and turns around every corner. You'll put your powers of observation to the test, and you'll sharpen your sleuthing skills. Just like all those detectives on TV, you get to relish the thrill of solving the case. So whether you're craving a good mystery or you just kind of want to get away for a little bit, June's Journey is the perfect game for you. You can sit back, relax, and let your inner Sherlock escape to the glamorous Roaring Twenties. You'll search for hidden clues to solve mystery after mystery across thousands of vivid scenes. And with new chapters every week, there's always a new case waiting to be cracked. Guys, I absolutely love this game. It's one of those games that completely captivates you and it will become your favorite hobby once you get started. I love to play at nighttime in my bed just as I'm getting ready to go to sleep. It's a great way to wind down. Other times I like to play as just a little mental pick-me-up. So are you ready to awaken your inner detective? Download June's Journey free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play.
Hey guys, I am excited as usual when we have special guests on, especially guests that are just starting a podcast. And a lot of times when we have these guests on, uh, they're just a couple of regular people that decide to start a podcast and we want to try to give them a break. That's not the case with these people. These uh, these two that we're going to talk to uh, have actually carved out a nice little niche already. Some of you will probably already know who they are. And if you don't, you're going to want to know who they are. So first of all, I want to I want to bring on Laura Brand. Now, Laura's a criminologist and she's got a reputation as being known as the toolbox killers expert. And uh, she's recently appeared on the Peacock and Oxygen Networks. First of all, thanks for coming on, Laura. We appreciate it. Of course. Thank you guys for having us. Oh, it's no problem. And then you're going to have a, a partner in crime, uh, I guess, literally, on this podcast. And he is James Anito, and he's a renowned demonologist. He's actually been ordained in two different Christian denominations. The podcast is going to be True Evil Podcast. James, thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me on us as well. <laughs> now, this podcast is going to be a combination of supernatural, which makes sense with your demonology background, and it's also going to be true crime, which makes sense with Laura's background. But your show is going to have uh, a couple little twists to it, and uh, I kind of want you, we'll start with Laura. Laura, explain kind of what's going to set your show apart from other shows that have paranormal and, and true crime together. What sets your show apart? Well, you know, when James and I met, um, I think it was at one of our cons or paranormal cons or um, an investigation, a paranormal investigation we were doing and we became close. And he said to me, you know, I have this concept for a podcast and I think we'd be perfect of kind of like joining forces of like the true crime aspect meets the supernatural aspect and, you know, diving into different cases and different uh, for different episodes. And it reminded me of the show Evil where it was, it's actually a forensic psychologist and a demonologist, you know, teaming up to actually look at cases and you have the psychological side and then you have, you know, the supernatural side and they're looking at the cases trying to determine what exactly is the factor. So I said to James, I was like, it reminds me of that show, which I love where it's kind of like science versus, you know, supernatural is kind of like coming together to look at different cases in that aspect. Now, James, as I was reading some stuff that you had sent me. Part of what you guys are going to look at is in some cases would say a serial killer does the paranormal or the supernatural play a part, whether it be a small part or a big part. Tell me a little bit about the angle you got going on there. Oh, for sure. Definitely. I think that anytime we hear of evil people, there's always that dualism of good and evil that comes into play. And we try and humanity, you always put that on somebody. We hear some of the most heinous crimes that ever have ever occurred in human history. We have appeased it to being the devil. And it's always fascinating when you hear that because you really want to be objective and say, no, it was because of this reason. But there are people out there that have truly claimed that they were influenced by something. Maybe somebody that we will have as a guest on our show, our podcast, True Evil. Um, but there have been people that claimed they have truly been possessed by a demon, that this was not them. And they have past psychological assessments. They don't have schizophrenia and bipolar. Then what is it? 
do things truly exist out there that we don't understand something maybe we project or something that truly exists beyond humanity. And that's, what's fascinating because there have been so many things lingered to this. And we try to explore that Laura and I, you know, both from our different backgrounds at her as a forensic psychologist, me as a demonologist who have, who has been ordained, like you said, in two different churches and her, she has a degree that is very tough to get very methodical. You know, I'm a student of psychology as well. And it's no easy task, and I respect that. It's a hard place to get to. I just have a serial killer. Let me just let me just hang up. Give me one second, sir. Well, actually, the viewers can hear it. You guys got a special guest. <laughs> the serial killer for the line tonight, guys. Thank you for using Global Link. Hey, sure. How are you, Shermantine? Listen, I want to talk to you. I'm in I'm in the middle of a podcast right now. Um, when do you have the phone again? Uh, I get in a few days. Like Thursday, Friday. Yeah. All right. Can you call me at this exact time? Okay. All right. I'll talk to you soon. I hate to hang up because I have to talk to you about something really important. But um, call me in the next couple of days. All right. All right. Bye. Sorry. Well, you guys got a little clip of my life <laughs> with the serial killers. Um, and we may be having some of them on our podcast at one point. So let me ask you this without you giving away details. I'm sure that's private information. But like. What do you do? Obviously, you said I've got something important to talk to you about. So what kind of what kind of talks would you be currently having with serial killers or what are, is this something that would benefit them? Is this something more for the show? Is this tell me a little bit about actually you? Actually, not for the show. I'm actually in the middle of a collective study. I've been doing the a collective study on serial killers for um going on eight years now almost. And it's actually we're debuting it. I partnered up with a forensic psychologist, Dr. John White. And we're going to actually be presenting this um, collective study for the first time in April. And it's going to be published um, out to the public eventually, too. Oh, very yeah. cool. Very cool. Yeah, I, so, think, I think. Oh, sorry, Jerry. No, you're go ahead. Go ahead. I, I think we, you know, that is for her study, which I cannot wait to see and when it comes out. I think it's going to be an interesting thing. But also on the show, too, you know, I think we where we will maybe have serial killers on the show is I think there is an angle where what what is their faith like what 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 in, what what did they linger on when they did these such things did they actually believe in God or did they detest God like what was their belief system with their involvements of it so there's that realm of it too that we can hit upon because it's not all supernatural we'll get into a lot of the true crime maybe gritties that people want to hear but we'll also do a bunch of twist one eighty turns and. Um, go a whole another route that a lot of people tend to believe that exist. A lot of people, one billion people believe in uh, uh, God as Christians. It's a lot of damn people. So, there, you know, there, there's so many different avenues we can play. And I think that's what's fascinating, especially when it comes to talking to people that have committed heinous acts. I know, obviously, there are, you had mentioned some people claim that, that uh, they've got something that pushes them in a direction. And when you when you tell me that, I, I think about the DeFeo situation in Amityville where he said that he hears voices. Uh, David Berkowitz, son of Sam, claims that he had a dog <laughs> that was possessed or something that was pushing him. Of course, he he had some satanic 
uh, cult dealings as well. Uh, obviously, you've got Arnie up at the uh, the famous Devil Maybe Do It case that the the latest uh, movie was about. The Warrens movie was about. So, uh, what kind of other cases can you think of that come to to mind other than those three right off the bat? I'm sure you probably have a couple that come to mind. There's one I really want to dive into. I think we're going to start to touch on it in the first episode, but we won't um, probably do a full episode on it until later. But there's a satanic cult that was uh, linked in Fall River. Um, it's a New England case. It's not too well known, um, but there was um, satanic rituals where you know prostitutes were being murdered, and it's a pretty big case in Massachusetts. And it's definitely one that I want to look into more um, in our show. Yeah, and then it also links to where people said there's connection to it. Not only that, but to Proven- Provincetown, Massachusetts, like Lady of the Dunes. So there's connections from that to Fall River. There, there are a lot of uh, chain links of satanic practices and, um, you know, mysterious disappearances and murders. And, you know, I think people have an idea of serial killers. This is a true crime uh, show, too. So we're talking about even people that have maybe killed one, two, three, four people in the name of something. It doesn't have to be a dozen people. It doesn't have to be an astronomical number. We can touch upon anybody that has to deal with some sort of influence. And Satanism is an influence, you know, by its nature. Not all of them are bad people and kill people, but it is an act of rebellion. It's a rebellious belief system. Um, and that's for matter of fact, that's not opinion. You can look at their testaments and their rules and the way they live. That's, you know, just understandable to think, but that's what they're meaning, but you don't have to be them and be a bad person, but for the people that have followed that route, what was their influence? Was there something talking to them? And when you invoke, right. Who think, who thinks that we cannot project, you know, there's clinical parapsychology out there. Parapsychology is still social science, at least of the most respect, least respected of them all. But it still has its contingencies. It still has its theories. It has its methods of objective information. But they still have fascinating uh, concepts and theories that we could talk about on the show with that involvement. Did they believe something evil existed? And through consciousness ability, they created and projected something, like the Philip experiment, which is a you know famous study by a group of psychologists. So let me ask you this. You you had mentioned off the air uh, a couple of guests you got coming up on the first episode. Are you able to divulge that or is that top secret till the episode comes out? It's public knowledge already. Laura, you want to tell who, who our fascinating guests are? I'm going to let you announce them only because it's one of somebody you work very close with. <laughs> okay, Laura. Laura, how about you? You announce one of the guests. I'll announce the other two. Uh, well, Jeff Bellinger, who I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with, is going to be on um, as a guest. Who's Jeff Bellinger, though, for the people that do not know who Jeff is? Um, so the people who don't know, he's um, pretty much a historian, especially of New England. Um, he's an author as well. Um, he writes for the show Ghost Adventures. Um, he's very uh, predominant here, and he... He knows his history of New England, too. And um, one thing I also want to bring up where this satanic cult was happening, um, it's known as like the Bridgewater Triangle. Here, it's kind of like the Bermuda Triangle. It's always fascinated me that stuff has been happening in these three towns of mass in this like little sector. And it's it's 
you know, um, mysterious and supernatural at the same time, but then it's also the murders and satanic rituals. It seems to be happening in this hub and Jeff knows a lot about it. And I actually wanted to have a big discussion with him about that on the first episode. I, I was I was showing James when he had mentioned that to me. I pulled a book that I got sitting right beside me on my desk from Jeff Bellinger. I had no <laughs> clue that he was going to say that. And I just haven't had the book right there. So it was kind of exciting to hear that. And it's funny you bring up the Bridgewater Triangle because I have another podcast and my co-host actually lives in Taunton. So oh, nice. it's yeah, right, right there in smack dab in the middle of the Bridgewater yeah. Triangle. So. Oh, for sure. Definitely. <laughs> All right, James, tell us about the other guests. So the other two guests are uh, Carl Johnson. Carl Johnson is a partner in crime of my supernatural side um, with a group called Duo Demonology. Carl Johnson is a paranormal investigator who's been involved in the field for 48 years. He has been on many different programs on television, many different lectures across the country. But what he is most known for is being the very first investigator with the team of the very first investigation at the Conjuring House in Harrisville, Rhode Island, famously known as the Conjuring movie series that started it all. Um, he was the first investigator. So I lecture and work with him on uh, demonology and supernatural realm cases. Uh, we, and we work together uh, to assess cases and try to help people that believe they're, they're dealing with something supernatural. And if they're dealing with something that's psychological, we bring them the proper help that we can get them as long as they're willing to listen. So Carl's coming on because not only is he my partner in crime in demonology, but he was a Satanist uh, and proclaimed Satanist. You know, he lectured with Ed and Lorraine Warren with his uh, backdrop of his Satanistic background. He's a good person now, a good person back then, but he still was a Satanist. And we'll get his perspective of why people do certain things in this realm. Now, our second guest that I also brought on that Carl works with her and she kind of works with Duo, um, she is historian and parapsychology researcher, uh, Alicia Marco Carlson. And, you know, she actually runs a historical society in Johnston, Rhode Island. She's the president. So she's a very fascinating individual. She's very into history. So we're bringing her on because guess what? Who knows history better than a historian in New England? So um, I think we have a trifecta of the f- first lineup we have, and I think it would be interesting. And you were yeah, telling I, me the show the, the podcast is going to be a once a month podcast, correct? Yeah. We might release, you know, a bonus episode here and there, but for once a month. Yeah. So let's let's switch gears a little bit. Laura, obviously, we can't not talk about the toolbox killers. <laughs> so how you're known as the toolbox killer network. Tell me, tell me a little, or I said network, but tell me, <laughs> tell me a little bit about how you became uh, so renowned on this particular case and uh, talk about a few of the shows that you've been on that uh, you were able to discuss some of your knowledge. So pretty much uh, Bittaker and Norris. Um, for those of you who don't know who Bittaker and Norris are, they're the toolbox killers. Um, They are where the infamous van, the creepy van came from. Um, They put a bed and um, tools in their van and they actually drove teenagers that they hunted um, on Hermosa and Redondo Beach. They would drive them up to the San Gabriel Mountains where they would rape and torture them, sometimes for different days. Um, They were known for putting the ice pick through the ear um, and that's how they would kill them. Um, 
And so pretty much when I started doing my study, um, I came across Bittaker and Norris. And they were the only two serial killers where I actually read about them and dropped the book. I couldn't even believe what I was reading, like their level of sadism. So when I was doing the study, um, Norris is in the study. Uh, Bittaker could not answer the questions. They were too deep for him to go that deep. Uh, but Norris is in the study. Um, but then um, Norris was very receptive to me initially. And Bittaker was like, I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to talk to you. Um, and Bittaker would not send me a visiting form. So I actually finagled it through San Quentin with another serial killer. I got his, he has to send out a visiting form with the signature at the bottom. So I got a serial killer who was close to him, get the signature at the bottom of the visiting form and send it out to me. And I showed up at San Quentin and he came down and that's how we first started talking. And it was like, um, you know, it was I had years and years of persistence of, you know, going back to San Quentin and interviewing him. Um, but it was when I was on death row, eight months pregnant, that's when he actually finally just like the dam broke. And he gave me the locations of where Cindy and Andrea are, who are the two missing victims who were never recovered. And as well as where he buried all the evidence too. So the next project we're actually going to be doing is uh, pitching a series. Uh, this is going to be with XG, uh, Jim, FBI profiler, Jim Clemente. Um, we want to go back and actually do the searches for the girls, do a search for the buried evidence. That's the next thing film-wise that we're doing. Um, but pretty much a background on the case. You can watch on streaming on Peacock, Hulu Premium, or On Demand on Oxygen. It's called The Toolbox Killer. But that's pretty much a two-hour backstory of the case itself. And you get to hear some of my interviews with Bittaker. Um, I recorded all my interviews with him. I have about, um, well, the ones on the phone. And I got uh, probably uh, over 10 hours of recorded interviews. So we're hoping a, there was so much that wasn't used on the two hour special that we're going to hopefully use on the next special. So, so let me ask you this. I know you're going to be doing some filming on uh, researching the, the, the locations of the bodies and trying to find that. Was that information not uh, of interest to police to go look already on their own? Or was that something that, you know, tell me a little bit about why that's not something that the police have already jumped on. Uh, well, it's a closed case on the California books and they just don't have the funding and they're just not doing the search. Okay. Um, the last I just recently spoke to LAPD and a couple of people out of the attorney's office. Uh, things are really bad in L.A. right now. They're up 400 homicides. Um, you know, we've seen such a rise in homicide, unfortunately, because of the pandemic. Um, so they're very, very, you know, overloaded with just fresh homicides at this point. And this is a 40 year, 43 year old or cold case at this point. So were they charged for the murders of the, of those missing girls as well? Or was that something they weren't charged with yet? They were, they were. So when, um, Norris turned state witness, so he had confessed to killing both of them. So they were both charged, uh, for those two killings. They were just never recovered. Hmm, incredible. James, tell me a little bit about how you got into demonology. What what made you decide to go down that path? And you mentioned that you're uh, you're recognized, obviously, or ordained, I should say, in two different denominations. What are those denominations? So I I don't know how how I can take that thunder after that. Like getting locations of serial killers. Oof, that that's that's just imagine I get the euphoric moment of like holy moly. I don't know how I could beat that. I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, I, set, I set you up for failure. I have to follow that. Yes, that's, <laughs> that's phenomenal. And, um, but how I got into demonology, um, 
was basically uh, my anti-religious uh, nature. I was very uh, atheistic, and maybe you like people call it agnostic, whatever word people like to use nowadays. But I, I, I was very anti-religious because of the fact that I dealt with a very traumatic history in my childhood. So I always thought, oh, why does this exist? And this has been done to me. Of course, lack of understanding of theology and neurotheology and so much more that theology is. Um, but I, I truly just did not understand. So I was very influenced in early biology, which is still uh, used theory today, you know, Darwinism. And Charles Darwin fascinated me, evolution fascinated me. And I started reading a lot of literature, a lot of books uh, of the academics nature, uh, started getting into computers. I started dabbling into a lot of things that, uh, that related to the STEM, you know, you know, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Um, and I was very fascinated in, the, in those industries and those aspects. And um, I really got fascinated with the paranormal, you know, there was, you know, uh, in search of with Leonard Nimoy, uh, Tales of the Crypt, Scooby-Doo, all these shows <laughs> that I grew up on that were very fascinating, that had some aspect of the supernatural or reasons that the supernatural did not exist. There were a lot of hidden elements and symbology in these, in these, in these, in these times, these literature, these books. Um, but basically, the kind of fast forward, and not to be boring in it, is that I just dealt with a certain few things. I was in the military. Uh, and when I was in the military, I, I used to go to church. I would say like every Sunday to get away from the barracks for an hour. If not, you were, you were, you were just there for another hour cleaning anyway. But I would just say hell with it. It's, it's a time to try to get away from the drill sergeants, kind of nap a little bit. So I would go to all different kinds of services every Sunday. Um, and every, every Sunday would be a new one. And I went to a Church of Christ service one time. And I just, my old self trying to nick her away. And I, I, this would not be me. Like I'm, I'm a jokester still to a jokester to this day, but um, they were asking who would like to be baptized this day. And there was a sudden jolt of me. Like I would, I raised my hand. I got baptized that day. There was a different perspective than me that day. Uh, I left different. I started reading the Bible. There was just something came over me. I don't know why, but I was medically discharged after your service. And I went through a depressing time because, you know, my military family is, is very expansive and I felt like a failure. So I came upon uh, the Church of Christ locally and became a pastoral assistant, then ordained in the Church of Christ um, and started dealing with demonology. But I was also a paranormal investigator since the age of 15. So when I got back from the military, I got heavily involved in it. Met my partner, Carl Johnson, that I work with to do demonology. We were part of a group beyond the Dale Paranormal. I was their tech manager. So I set up all the DVR equipment, all the all the data collecting equipment that we tend to use. Um, not the bells and whistles you see on television. But um, so I basically just fell in it with it because of Carl. Um, as far as the other uh, church I'm ordained with, I was ordained with the Old Catholic Church. I was a seminarian and then eventually ordained a deacon. So I am a deacon with, with the old Catholic church, which, which is a denomination of Catholicism, just like there are many branches of it. And I am ordained. Uh, I was an ordained minister with the church of Christ. All right. Fair enough. And first of all, thank you for your service. And my pleasure. I love America. Awesome. 
Laura, in all of your extensive criminology research, have you ever come across a situation where a group of kids and a dog solved a crime by pulling a mask off of a man? Because he no. brought up Scooby-Doo, and I was trying to figure out how authentic that is. I, <laughs> I haven't come across it yet. Only bad experiences with vans, really, really bad experiences. <laughs> so um, what, what made you get into criminology? It's uh, it's a, it's like he said earlier, it's a, it's a difficult path to take. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's definitely something you want to do in order to get into it. So what led you down that path? Honest, the honest answer is it's always been appalling since I was like a child. I've known I've wanted to do this um, very, very young. Um, I started reading Nancy Drew, which led into true crime. But I mean, I was like reading about murder as young as seven. And um, yeah, I mean, it's just always felt like it was my calling. And this is what I was put on this earth to do. Um, but I guess Nancy Drew was kind of like the gateway <laughs> into true crime and into criminology. Um, I was reading, you know, like the FBI profiler books by middle school. I was reading, you know, um, college textbooks, textbooks in high school about criminology. Um, so it's just always been my passion. I was always, you know, I started so young, really. Well, it's good because if you're going to do something as a career, it needs to be a passion or, or you're yeah. just going to hate doing it. Do you feel like you've suffered some type of trauma just because of so much that you've seen? Does it take its toll on you? Well, I will say, <laughs> crazy enough, even though this has been like my life's passion, this is what I went to school for, what I have a degree in. Um, I actually, um, my cousin actually murdered my best friend right after my 27th birthday. And oh, wow. it was actually my first crime scene, my first in-person crime scene. And I, you know, when I thought about seeing a real life crime scene, I always thought it would be like me going on with the homicide detectives. I never thought it was going to be, you know, my cousin killing my best friend. Um, it was a savage crime scene. Uh, so that was my first crime scene. So I guess there's been trauma from that. But honestly, you know, I'm a very spiritual person and I feel like this happened for a reason. And I have such a better understanding now from like the offender side as well as the victim side. Um, I lived through both of it, you know, loving the two people, the one who did this to my best friend, the victim. So I had the victim stance and the offender stance, you know, through that experience, I got such a better understanding. Um, as far as like things I've seen and stuff, I would say. Bitteker and Norris were the first two that ever gave me nightmares. I started having reoccurring nightmares, um, but that was the first case. But this was the biggest case I ever dove into, um, into the full investigation into. Do those two show any type of remorse at all, or is it just nonchalant? Yeah, we did it, so what? Um, pretty much totally nonchalant. And then at the very, very end, when Bitteker found out he had cancer and he was dying, that's when he started having like these like freakouts and breakouts of like um, crying and saying like, what have I done? You'll see a part, you'll see a little uh, tiny piece of that on the show. He screams out, what have I done? Um, that was from one interviews. And then I went to actually see him in San Quentin. So we, I spent three weeks out at San Quentin right when he was dying, um, five hour visits. And um, he was a mess in those like final days. Um, so I would say at the very, very end, very end, but before that, no, no response or no remorse or empathy or anything. Amazing. James, let me ask you this. When it comes to demonology, hmm. what is, I'm not going to say 
the scariest thing because that might not be the right terminology. But if you had any encounters so far that have freaked you out a little bit. Yes, uh, definitely. And your question to Laura is fascinating. I think in the ability, it's a psychology term, the, uh, the word transference um, occurs in many aspects when you're dealing with somebody, sometimes their emotions linger on you. Um, you have to do your best to kind of wiggle that off or even the another term shared hallucination. Um, things that are possible that when you're dealing with people, you get too involved with it, it becomes your reality too. Um, so that is itself scary. And that happens in my realm. But uh, I would say that the, the most daunting case was the most easiest involvement I had. Um, I, I believe in my time of doing this uh, of 16 years, I have only truly come across three cases that where somebody maybe was truly possessed by a demonic entity. And these people went through psychological assessments and primary care physicians um, and, and things that couldn't, they, of course, they had some sort of disorder, but not a manic episode or a psychosis issue that would, would cause this. Um, but it was a demonic infestation case. Um, and this was in Western Massachusetts towards the Berkshires. And uh, basically, it was a family of two, a husband and wife and three children. And I usually do a multiple uh, interview, uh, interview process. I do a, a written email. Uh, uh, interview. I do a phone interview and I do an in-person interview because I want to see if the story changes. There's elements that I want to see, the dynamics, that make the questions. I'll change a little bit to throw them off. It's not because I want to trick them truly. It's just I want to see if, if they're really telling the truth. And um, so I had never seen this family. Uh, I hadn't been to the point of being there yet, but I had done a phone interview. I heard their voice. I had seen pictures of scratches on their arms, but no like facial features, no, no pictures of the, the children, the house truly. I've seen maybe like a picture of a vase supposedly that moved, but I would never see the full exterior or the interior of the house. So because there's children involved, I made it very fast uh, to, to want to get there. And Western Massachusetts is not far at all. So I said, okay, it, this was, I think it was on Sunday that I said, Okay, I'm coming on Saturday of that following week. And within that week of on the way to going there, I had a prolific nightmare um, that would always and will still follow me to this day. And why I say it's scary is because this shows you that there, these things are possible and there was no way that it was the, my, my brain doing so unless how I somehow telepathically received information from that long of a distance. But in my nightmare, I basically went to these people's house. And now I feel like I'm a serial killer, right? I went to this, these people's house, um, seen the exterior of the house, seen the landscape, seen like houses surrounding, went inside, sat down to the interview, um, seen, I, I do a, a tour of the house. So I have a good understanding. I look for things, maybe drugs or uh, dirtiness or uh, if they're, they're hoarders. I look for these little details. And uh, instead of do helping them, I killed every single one of them, like the DeFeo situation at Amityville. I butchered these little children. I butchered the husband and wife in my nightmare. If I was weak and sick to the stomach, I probably would have vomited upon waking up, but I woke up startling. And the craziest thing and why I tell that story is because 
when I went there on Saturday, it didn't deter me because I'm crazy. Um, and I, I think of children having a child myself now. Um, I think that, you know, they are innocent. They deserve to be uh, helped in some way. I went there, the exterior of the house, the landscape, the interior of the house, the children, the husband and wife were spitting image to my nightmare, to the, to the mole on their face, to the hair, to the bristles, to their smile, to their stance. Everything was the same as my nightmare. And remember, I had never seen these people, never seen their face, only talked to them. And that was the craziest thing that ever happened to me. And it was startling. I wanted to run away. But when you're there and you don't want to put, make these people more scared, I stood my ground and just did my best to not think of that. But I would say that was the craziest, the craziest thing that I ever, ever come across dealing with this because it felt intrusive. It felt in the comfort of my home this occurred. It's amazing. We're talking to uh, James and Laura from the True Evil podcast. The podcast is not actually out yet. won't be out till late February. Uh, they've been nice enough to ask me to actually do the promo to get this thing kicked off and, and uh, get people listening. I'm excited to do that for them. Right now, you guys do have a YouTube page. If, if uh, for some reason, when people start hearing this, if the uh podcast subscription service isn't available just yet they do have a youtube page where they can follow you guys uh james what's the youtube page true evil t-r-u-e-e-v-i-l and we also will have a website up soon trueevil.us nice and if they go to the youtube page what kind of stuff will they see right now nothing (laughs) just our beautiful faces mostly laura's beautiful face but my face will be there. <laughs> <laughs> but guys, it's been an absolute blast talking to you. I'm, I'm glad you were able to make a little bit of time to, to come on. I know you both have a thousand things going on. I mean, Laura's juggling serial killers and you've got, you know, <laughs> possible demon attacks coming from everywhere. And uh, I appreciate the fact that you took the time to spend it with uh, our listeners. I'm sure they're going to absolutely love your podcast as soon as they get a chance to to do this. So I'm excited for you guys. Yeah. And I'll just say, I'm going to do a little teaser for all your viewers. Um, not the first um, episode, but the second episode, we actually do have someone who committed murder um, claiming under supernatural influence. Um, they are going to be the second show that we're going to be interviewing. Nice. Nice. All right, guys, thank you so much for coming on. And uh, like I said, we'll definitely make sure as soon as the podcast is out, we will post links and everything on on our page to try to uh, get the word out. Because I know people are going to be on pins and needles waiting this extra month and a half to be able to uh, to check it out. Yeah. <laughs> thank you for having us on. You're thank welcome. You, thank you for having us on. All right, guys, that wraps up this week. Thanks for being patient with us while we uh, played an older patreon episode but most of you haven't heard that one so and uh, for those of you who had heard it you got the new interview from uh, true evil so thank you guys and we'll talk to you soon